Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Greg Wolf. He is a historian and archaeologist specializing in the late Iron Age and the Roman Empire. He is currently the director of the Institute of Classical Studies and a professor of classics at the University of London. His most recent book is The Life and Death of Ancient Cities. Welcome to the show, Greg. Well, thanks for having me. So to start your recent book, The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, Tell us a little bit about what the thesis of that book is and what you are hoping to communicate. Well, there's there's sort of two parts to it. And the first part is to argue that rather than cities being something strange and weird and unnatural, that they're actually completely natural to our species. And our species is very well suited to live in cities. So obviously, we weren't, there was no plan to make us city dwellers. But the fact that cities have grown up all over the world in the last 6,000 years shows that humans are pretty good at living in cities. And I think I'm probably with the mainstream in thinking that there's no one big reason for this. It's simply that cities turn out to be really good solutions to all sorts of other problems. So good solutions for control, good solutions for managing populations. Sometimes it's about defense. Sometimes it's about concentrating producers close together. And cities pop up in little clusters all around the world over the last 6,000 years. To begin with, some of those clusters failed spectacularly in the Bronze Age. And then my specialty is in the Roman Empire. And so the second half of the book is really looking at what happens to the cities around the Mediterranean. And there's a few unusual things about them in terms of other cities. They arrive quite late compared to what's the cities of what are now sort of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Iran even China and India. So cities come quite late to the Mediterranean, so I spend a bit of time asking why that is. And they're very, very small ancient cities in the Mediterranean. Most of them are just a few thousand people, so I spend a bit of time trying to work out why that is. And if there's a big answer to that, it's that the ancient Mediterranean is a very poor place to concentrate populations because it is so difficult to get people and food around. And it's an area that's constantly struck by famines and other kinds of crises. So the most suitable kind of urbanism is micro-urbanism. It's urbanism that's close to the soil and deeply integrated with local agricultures, farming, livestock raising and so on. The connections between cities are important, but no city could ever really survive just on the basis of those connections, unless it's a an imperial city, so the exceptions to the rule, the cities that get big up to a million in the case of Rome, not big today, but pretty big in the ancient world. These are all capitals of empires. So they use their political muscle to either provision themselves or to guarantee themselves support from a huge area around. So that's 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 the book in a nutshell. Cool. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Well, let's start. Why study classical history? What, what's so interesting about that? 
Um, I find all periods of the ancient world very, very interesting. I, I like the big questions, I, but I suppose it's an interest that's grown. I started in a fairly traditional way as a English school kid. I studied Latin at school and some Greek. And in my holidays, I went and dug holes on the downs because it was something out, outdoors and good fun and hang out with other young people. And gradually those interests came together. But the way I see it now is it's an accident that I work on the classical past, the Greek and Roman past. I'm equally interested in all sorts of other late prehistoric societies and some early prehistoric things. And I think more and more I want to know the answer to the big question. You know, we've been around as a species for about probably 300,000 years. That, that's Homo sapiens, not the other hominids. That's an enormous amount of time. And we've lit, we've farmed for maybe 12,000 years and we've in some form or other of farming and we've li- and we've lived in cities for 6,000 years. So this is a pretty big question. If I could, I'd study all these other areas in the same way, but I don't have Indian languages. I don't read Mandarin. I'm not close enough to Mesoamerica to study it. So I, I rely on the works of like-minded others and, and try to try to put something together from all of that. Cool. And so your book is kind of a reference to Jane Jacobs. Why? I mean, Jane Jacobs is a sort of one of those figures who saw the big questions. You know, most of us started on little bits and pieces. And around the 70s, the group of archaeologists, anthropologists who began to say, well, this stuff happening in the Valley of Mexico isn't totally different from what's happening over there in Mesopotamia. And for a while, it was just one-on-one calculate comparisons but Jane Jacobs was one of the first to sort of make it systematic to do if you like an urban sociology that had depth I mean urban sociology most of the time it's it's great discipline but it's mostly about what's happening today but she was an urban historical sociologist and her work inspires lots of us sure that's interesting because that isn't right that's what was the book that like economy of cities or survival of systems, not 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 life and death. Life and death death was much more America focused. What is a city, and how do they first come into existence? Okay, cities are they're not necessarily big. A lot of cities have just a few thousand people in, but where they differ from villages of the same size is this: in a village, virtually everyone's the same. You know, virtually everybody's a farmer. They live in the same kind of houses. You excavate an ancient village; it might be very impressive in lots of ways, but it doesn't have monuments. It won't, probably doesn't have uh, great tombs around it. So it's a, it represents people living closely together, but the people are all alike. And what the difference in the city is, you have farmers, you have craftsmen, you have kings, you have priests, you have soldiers, you have, and then the same the same thing looks like it in space. So you have a public area, you have squares, avenues, boulevards, and temples, and you have other things. So cities are more complicated. Now, I think probably you couldn't have a very, very large village, although there's a few weird prehistoric structures that maybe had 30,000 people in them. But organizing a village at that size is really difficult. So cities, most of them are bigger than villages, but the key thing is they're more complicated. Okay. So, so cities are basically defined by maybe to a certain extent division of labor in the sense that with villages, it is everybody has the same occupation, whether it's farmers and presumably if they get invaded, everybody picks up a spear and, and uses a spear. But then in a city, you actually have people who are dedicated guardsmen and dedicated priests and dedicated craftsmen, whatever. And, and but if I'm looking at the, the history of kind of urbanization, right, one of the recent, by recent, I mean, I don't know, I think last 10 years, 
of discoveries is, is and I'm going to butcher this name, Gobekli Tebe, kind of the, the village city in Turkey, where the previous narrative was largely that for cities to emerge, you basically needed some surplus producing crop, which is typically a grain, wheat or, or rice. And that surplus producing crop, right, one, it produces a surplus, and then two, it is also legible. And legible from right, James C. Scott means just like kind of easy to see, measure, take quantities of, and then store. And if it's a tuber, you can just plant the tuber. And then if the bad guys come and chase you off your farm, right, they don't know where to dig up. And you can come back six months later and dig up the tuber and still eat it. Versus if it's a grain, right, if you leave, then the bad guys can take all the grain and then put it in their silos and then keep it. Or they can come and just tax you 20%, whatever, every year and take the grain. The traditional story of cities has basically been, you need this surplus producing grain. And that leads to the ability for a typically like the, the extractive elite to come take some of that surplus and then use it to live better lives themselves. And then typically set up these social structures like priests to kind of develop a, a civic religion, soldiers to ensure that their boundaries are protected. And what Gobekli Tebe is kind of a counterpoint to is that my understanding is that it is a has all of the city structures, but it is only like temporary part of the year. And it doesn't have all the surrounding what might be called like extractive infrastructure that was traditionally associated with cities, which basically means that people are coming to this to engage in city like functions without the extractive technologies that have traditionally accompanied cities. So one, is that interpretation correct? And if so, two, like how does that influence how we think about the creation of cities? I mean, it's an extraordinary site and it's, it's always quite difficult to build something on the basis of just one site. But I tell the story slightly differently. I'd say there are almost two traditions to a city. And, and there is the the agriculture intensification that you talked about, Scott, but I mean, not just with grains, also with you know, maize in at the Americas, with rice in China and so on. So these kind of strategies of agricultural accumulation, building surpluses. So so not just getting by at a small scale, but but producing more. And that more allows you to pay for other stuff. So that's, if you like, one one root of the city. The other root of the city is collective activities, which you could call ritual or social or communal. And Gobekli Tepe, I think, what it looks like, it looks like it's one of these great sanctuary sites. You get them elsewhere. Maybe Kahokia is one. Maybe Stonehenge is another. Sites which are built over you know, generations take huge amounts of investment of manpower, and it is usually constructed entirely with human labor. And scattered populations come together and do things there, but then they go back again. And so the city kind of brings these together. It's like you've got a sort of one line going down through enormous sort of ritual sites, another going down through productive agriculture. The city brings those two together. And one of the things that's really unusual about Gobekli Tepe is that most of these big ritual sites we know about are built by agriculturalists. You know, Stonehenge is built by agriculturalists, the very first farmers, perhaps, but they're the ones doing it. And what's unusual about Gobekli Tepe is it appears to be built by people who didn't yet farm. But I say appears because it's a lighthouse in a landscape that isn't fantastically well understood. So... Yeah, it wouldn't totally surprise me if we think about that site in a different way in 20 years' time. Okay. Because, I mean, like these two, I guess, right, like the one, the extractive part versus kind of the ritual part, to me, which is, I mean, maybe they're, they're like they're both obviously part of cities, but 
if there is this, they, they t- seem to tell very different stories of humanity, right? Where one, there is this, like, I don't know, natural instinct, and this obviously exists to a certain extent, to form communal rituals, to build bonds. But if this is the, the instinct that is like the, the primary driver of urbanization or the primary driver of right these first groups of like large people getting together versus the domestication of grains, it seems to have like very different implications for how we understand, I don't know, human humanity and behavior. We've pretty clearly been doing ritual as long as we've been humans. And you can find this in Australian rock art. You find this in the caves in Spain and France and so on. So ritual goes back much longer. And the difference with these big ritual sites is the scale in which it's being done. And in most cases, it looks like what's underlying that is once you move to agriculture, once you sort of step down the food chain, stop eating things that eat grass and eat grass yourself, populations rise dramatically. So the move to agriculture leads to big population growth. And then everything people used to do, they do in a different way. So you still do ritual, but now your ritual involves lugging vast chunks of stone across the landscape and organizing them. You always used to do ritual, but it used to be sort of 20 people around a guttering candle in a cavern. Now it's thousands working together on these sites. So I would see the the essential precursor for urbanism is agriculture. And not not just not just grains, all, all kinds of agriculture. But we don't know any society that has built cities that hadn't already been farmers for a few thousand years. So it's that that slow burn of farming, and you live where you you just have to. You become sedentary. You stay where you are. You have larger populations because until you've got traction animals, one of the big constraints on productivity is input, energy input, and energy input is human power. So more bigger populations produce more, and there's now an incentive to have larger populations. But perhaps for some hunter-gatherers, it's more of an incentive to have just enough people. Too many people in a hunter-gatherer territory is a problem. But for agriculturalists, for quite a long time, the more the merrier. And that, and that amping up of the raw energy. I think that explains why people do ritual differently, why they do farming differently, and eventually why they do society differently, why they they create the urban world and the world of states, empires, kingdoms, all the rest of it. Cool. I think in your previous answer, you actually touched on this interesting point, saying you thought that uh, Gobekli Tepe, right, might, our understanding of it might change in the next 20 years because of uh, future discoveries. And so me, if I'm right, like thinking about I've always kind of joked the best way to be remembered is to build very large structures in arid environments, which is basically just the pyramids. Everybody remembers ancient Egypt, but nobody remembers the Mesoamerican people because all the Mesoamerican pyramids are covered in dirt and in forests. And so there's still probably like Mayan ruins in Honduras where every few years you see like a new Mayan ruin has been discovered because it's in a bunch of jungle that nobody goes to. And so with LIDAR, they're making some recent discoveries. So in addition to that, right, you have this, like, to a certain extent, human tendency to sometimes want to erase the past, where recently we've seen this ISIS and the Taliban destroying ancient sites. And a third tendency is maybe not like erase the past per se, but to a certain extent, quote unquote, control the past, where if you are a new emergent state and you want to establish like long routes, maybe you allow for a lot more architectural discovery. So you can say, my people have been here forever. Or maybe if you're like a recent conqueror, you don't want to do that because then you're kind of undermining the legitimacy because the other people have been there forever. 
And I guess, right, like, and then three, you just have this general, right, like, I don't know, what might be called archaeological technology, where as a society gets more advanced, they have more extra income to spend, and they get better archaeology technology to discover and uncover kind of our past history. Right. With that, how, how do you think about, right, like, I don't know, advances in our understanding of the past coming over the next 20, 30 years with, like, all of these changes and factors going on? I totally agree with what you say about the way in which people who want to reconstitute the present reconstitute the past and they and you can do it by demolition you can do it by defacing things you can do it by claiming things you can go into the Toltec ruins and get artifacts to make yourself look good you can bring back Greek statues and put them all over the city of Rome all of those things are possible or you can ostentatiously go back to year zero which is a few societies have done so um, North Africa, after the Arab invasions of the 7th century, the Roman cities weren't important to them. The materials were. They'd raid them to build amazing mosques and so on. Whereas on the other side, of the, the north, the Mediterranean, Franks and Byzantines and so on are busy establishing their credentials. So I think it's true that we see the remains of those big city building things, but we're getting better at looking at unusual places. So one of the big discoveries of the last 20 years or so has been the early archaeology of humans in Australia. And that's meant exploring more environments. But yeah, one of the other things that's happened is that the early Australian sites were by the coast. And because people crossed into Australia at a time when there was an ice age and sea levels were much lower because so much water is tied up in the, in the glaciers and the ice caps, Australia was bigger. It's easier to get from New Zealand, what's now New Guinea, to Australia. But what that means is the whole ring of lost sites around Australia that's only just now being discovered. Or near where I am, the huge area of the North Sea between eastern Scotland and northern Germany and Scandinavia, much of that was inhabited in the Mesolithic period by people. And when the sea levels rose, those dogger land disappeared. So I think you asked what, what we're getting better at doing, getting better at looking in weird places. So that might mean LIDAR, laser scanning of ruins from the sky, which can map those structures that you were talking about earlier, even if there's forest cover over them. Better excavation of underwater sites and much, much better understanding of ancient biofacts. So even down to identifying plagues and so on from, from the DNA of you know, long dead population. So I, th- I think we've got a lot of new tools to use. And I think we, we don't find more of the same. We don't say, oh, yes, what we thought already turned out to be true. We, we keep finding new additional things that the Amazonia was you know, populated by farmers in prehistory, which yeah, in the past people thought it was just, it was just a wild place until, until the Spaniards arrived and Portuguese. But no, it, there's LIDAR can pick out cultivation sites and roots and so on underneath the forest. Yeah, it's 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 just amazing, really. There was also a report, I forget where, like a year or two ago, that seemed reasonably credible that had humans in the in the Americas, I think at twenty thousand BC instead of ten thousand. And it wasn't, it was I think it was what was it, like small fractured rocks that basically there was evidence that they were using them to like break bones for bone marrow or something. So it's not like knockdown evidence, but at least it seemed reasonably like not, not something that you could just dismiss out of hand no i think that's right and for a long time there was a sort of 
before Clovis almost seemed like a conspiracy theory, but now there's enough sites which are definitely there. And people came into the Americas multiple times and they, some of them hopped down the coast and got quite a long way far down the coast before inland sites were settled. And, and then you also get tracking vegetables and chickens and things like that across the Pacific. And, you know, they don't all arrive with Columbus and, and Pizarro and so on. So the world's being connected up a lot longer than than we used to think. You know, when, when I went to school, not, you know, the world was completely fragmented until Christopher Columbus, and it's not like that anymore. Yeah, because over the last sort of decade or two, the kind our kind of understanding of humanity, of human nature, has changed with the DNA revolution. And now that it's very deep to sequence DNA, so with the new technology for archaeology, is there anything that you would think will change our understanding of, of humanity as these new technologies get more rolled out and, and are able to kind of get a better sense of our past? Yeah, I'm sure there will. There's several frontiers at the moment that are interesting. I mean, one of them is pushing the, the age of our species back a lot further. Another is discovering how many different versions of humans were around in the recent past. So discoveries on Flores, the Denisovans, the apparent gene flow from Denisovans into some people living on the Tibetan plateau and others colonized in the Pacific. So at the moment we've got four or five populations living when people used to say, well, just there's humans and there's humans, homo sapiens and Neanderthals, and that's much more than that. And we've hardly scratched the surface of the, you know, most the most genetic diversity in the human race at the moment is within the continent of Africa because everybody else is descended from people who left Africa probably several times in the last few hundred thousand years. But there hasn't been as much research. And partly it's because it's less easy to recover the material, the human material from the tropics. But people are getting better and better at doing that. They're getting better and better at recovering DNA from from very small samples or particular bones. And then there's also an entire science of investigating the prehistory of the great apes. So trying to fill in the gaps on the chimpanzee and gorilla and orangutan family trees. So in that area, I think everything's to play for still, yeah. But, of course, you never know, do you? You never know what the next one's going to be because in the nature of these things, discoveries are unpredictable. And in the 70s, the big deal was radiocarbon dating, which is now so standard that everybody uses it all the time. But there's a famous paper written called Wessex Without Mycenae, and that's, Wessex is the area of England which has Stonehenge in it. And people always assumed that it was built by Greeks travelling out into the Atlantic because how would the poor, stupid Brits manage to do any of this? We knew civilization was generally east and south. Once they began to date things with radiocarbon, they discovered that all of this is wrong, just like now they're beginning to see how species are related with DNA, discovered that the traditional family trees, some of them are completely fictitious based on similarities in appearance, phenotypical similarities, but the genes tell a different story. So it's all going to be different in the future. It's great. That's why I love it, because it's it's just changing all the time. Cool. Well, let's get back to urbanization. So how, how should we think about urbanization in the Bronze Age? And like, I, I guess I, I've never really... Like, Generally thinking about the Bronze Age, in reading your book, I realized I, my understanding of it was perhaps much weaker than I, I really thought. It was a Bronze Age, like people talk about the Bronze Age, and you had all of these like relatively advanced trading networks. 
uh, were these like similar cultures? I mean, were they speaking similar language? If we think about like kind of the, the Iron Age, we think about the, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Romans. I mean, how, how do we think about the Bronze Age within like that, I guess, broader context? There's a lot of Bronze Age societies that do have things in common. So Bronze Age society from China through India and what's now Iran, Iraq, Egypt, all of them use writing. This, but they're not all the same kinds of writing. So they invent writing multiple times. So they don't use the same alphabets in Mesopotamia that the Egyptians do, even quite close ones. And they all use some basic forms of weights and measures and some math, which suggests that one of the key uses is to manage surpluses and trade and so on. But again, it does vary. And probably they don't, well, we know there are many different languages and Probably the language groups are more different in the Bronze Age than they are later. Later, you get the big spreads to all the Indo-European family of languages that, that does appear in the in the late Bronze Age, and that connects up North Indian languages with Celtic, Germanic, Greek, Latin, but also less common ones like Hittite and so on. So, the language flow does happen later, but to begin with, it's more like. All the way around the world, some farming societies have made the jump to urbanism. Perhaps there are others that tried and failed. We just wouldn't know because if you don't last more than a couple of generations, you're invisible. But somehow or other, these societies popped up. And then one of the first things they do is they start reaching out like huge tendrils to try and get stuff from somewhere else. So the first cities in what's now central southern Iraq, they needed timber. Well, this isn't a great place for timber. And they needed metals. And so eventually you get caravans of donkeys going up onto the Anatolian plateau, carrying textiles and other goodies and trading for metals. And meanwhile, there's people out in uh, Afghanistan, as it is today, mining rare, rare stones and making objects out of those. And so... These societies, to begin with, they're, they're trading with distant people. Hardly any of them know what's at the other end of the trade route. Often things go through several middlemen, like with a famous Silk Road, that you don't get traders who set out from China and end up in Italy and then back again, except for Marco Polo. No one really knows where this stuff comes from, and there are stupid legends. You know, um, The Greek Herodotus thinks that gold comes from India, where it's mined by, where gold dust is mined by giant ants. And the Romans know nothing about China apart from that's where silk comes from. Their name for them is the Seres, the silk people. And the Chinese eventually get a bit of information about the Romans, but it's so on the edge that they think the Roman capital is in Antioch, which is near modern Damascus. They don't even know the Mediterranean Sea exists. So, no, these people are information-starved, but they, they're desperate to get materials and... Some materials are rare. You know, if you want to build great palaces in Egypt, you want cedarwood. But cedarwood, you need to go to Lebanon. And so the first maritime sailing is when the Egyptians elaborate the sail that they've been using on the Nile and go on up to Lebanon. And then there's sort of unexpected consequences. Once you go up, you know, what starts as an expedition to go and get some wood, you then discover you can go to Cyprus. And it turns out there's copper there. And then you can go to Greece. So it's these things ramify. They shoot out branches and they connect. And 
like I say, probably a lot of these expeditions fail. Lots of boats sink. Plenty of people go somewhere and can't trade or get killed by the locals. But enough succeeds that you get this thinly connected world of of little hotspots. Cool. And then the Bronze Age collapses by maybe the sea people. So who are the sea people? And what, what, what was that general collapse like? There's no real agreement about what explains the late Bronze Age collapse. And it's it's local. It's only the eastern Mediterranean and Greece. I mean, some people want there to be some great volcanic event. Some people think it's peasants overthrowing their masters and then fleeing. And it's, there's clearly crises all over. The Hittite Empire disappears. Mycenaean palaces crumble. Egypt's sort of okay. What's the timeline for all of these kind of collapses? Are we talking about years, decades, hundreds of years, right? If we look at what might be described as the first kind of fall in Bronze Age civilization to what might be thought of as kind of the last or close to the last, how does that all fit together? For the East Mediterranean late Bronze Age collapse, you're talking decades. Something happens very rapidly. We don't really know where it starts because our chronology is not fine enough. We don't know if it's a kind of chain reaction, something happens and then it knocks on. We can see it looks sort of systemic, lots of things falling over. but And it isn't impossible that there'll be a climatic or some other explanation that would... I mean, these, these societies, are, they're less resilient than later ones. They're much less resilient than us. They're less resilient than Iron Age. We've just been going through nearly a year of global crisis. It's a global crisis which we appear to be coming out of just 12 months later. That's extraordinary. You know, our power to withstand these sort of things, you know, we will lose millions and millions of people, but there are 7 billion on the planet. My intuition is actually that Bronze Age society should be a little bit less fragile because it's much less interconnected. I mean, it is part of these broader trading networks, but the average person is probably only dependent on, right? like the average, I don't know, peasant in a Bronze Age society is probably only dependent on, like I don't know, 10 or 20 miles around them. And occasionally, once or twice a year, maybe they get spices or they attend a big feast. And obviously, the elites are kind of dependent on these broader trading networks versus kind of the average, like middle or lower income person in the US today is dependent on goods from China. They get their coffee from Ethiopia or from Colombia, right? Like, and so if I'm, my, my intuition is just that thinking about the Bronze Age, each individual kind of like city state or town or small empire, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, because it isn't nearly as interconnected. I would just think that like systemic collapse uh, across multiple societies is is a little bit more rare. Where in the U.S., right, there's a few breaking points. If there's a few breaking points in the U.S., then that will affect the entire world. And we're already kind of seeing that with the withdrawal of U.S. hegemony. We're seeing, right, like basically a, what looks like a civil war in Ethiopia. We're seeing Armenia and, and Azerbaijan go to war with each other. And all of these, in my mind, are at least a somewhat thing of function of the withdrawal of our, our umbrella. And so if something goes wrong in the U.S., that has all of these like global consequences versus the Bronze Age, right? There wasn't a singular, there wasn't a pox, I don't know, a pox like whatever city was there that, that was creating this, this, this broad degree of civility. So I don't know, why, why is my intuition wrong? I don't think your intuition is wrong, but I think collapse means different things in the two contexts. That in the ancient world, you're right that most people, let's call them peasants, they produce most of what they eat, they eat most of what they produce, they touch the outside world in much slighter degree than than we do. But when we talk about collapse of the Hittite kingdom or 
of the Bicentenary palaces. What we mean is the top bit goes down. Probably the little bits underneath, to some extent, carry on you know, a bit of a shock. But yeah, we can actually occasionally find people living in the suburbs of Mycenaean cities after the palaces have gone. So collapse there, they're building these fragile houses of cards on top of a society that produces very, very little surplus. You know, this, this really, they, they, they're not dug in. Some societies may collapse simply because they can no longer show their connection to the outside world enough way to but when I say a society collapse, what I mean is that top level of the social order collapses, that the, the five great cities of the Indus Valley, when they're gone, what's left behind looks very much like what was there before. So that that kind of collapse. Let's get a bit more granular then, because, for example, when we talk about like the collapse of the Roman Empire, I mean, Rome, for example, goes from a city of a million people to like tens of thousands in, in like, I don't know, 700 AD or whatever. And so there, that does seem to be, obviously, you do have the collapse of the elite segment of society, but you do seem like general de-urbanization, general depopulation. And also, if you look at like average living standards in terms of the average person having like plates, having, having materials that they would use relatively frequently coming from areas that were much further removed, meaning basically they had access to much broader trade networks. And so at least with Rome, there does seem to be a, what we would like, I don't know, the collapse intuition where it's not just an elite collapse, but it is kind of a broad collapse of what we would consider on a general living standards. Is that also applicable to Bronze Age or is, was Bronze Age much more kind of concentrated within I don't know, certain subpopulations? I think Bronze Age is much smaller scale and much more fragile and much more concentrated. Yeah. And I mean, you're right about Rome. I mean, things survive. Cities survive. Christianity survives. Literature survives. But, yeah, the Roman thing is much more interconnected in the way that we are. But in terms of bronzes, you're seeing sort of paramount chieftains collapsing, really, in the way that they have over the world often and maybe not doing too much damage to others when they fall. And obviously, you've got a city of a million people. If it's sustained by political supremacy and then the political supremacy goes... Well, that's like Detroit losing General Motors. You know, nothing nothing sustains it beyond the basic level of carrying capacity of land. But yeah, Bronze Age things, they, they, they seem, maybe they're just dependent on fewer relationships. Maybe they're just a bit closer to the wire. Who knows? It does seem to be a case around the world that, that these early state societies are much more, I wouldn't say accident prone, that, that sounds terrible, but they they do fall down quite quickly, and then people, people rebuild them. I mean, sometimes it happens in the same space, so we don't see it, but you, you know, Egyptian politics collapses several times and is then rebuilt. Now, we look at it from our time distance. We say, hey, this is a society that the pharaohs ruled for 4,000 years. Yeah, but what happens is you always rebuild in the same places because you're geographically pushed into where's a good place for a city. A lot of the material you're going to reuse is there. If you're lucky, you've got traditions you can mobilize. So this is back to your point about reusing the past. So, and the same is true in China. Yeah, China, we traditionally date back the Chinese empire to the first emperor, so what, 221 BC? But there have been many periods between then and now in which the area of China has been fragmented. Warring states divided into northern southern dynasties, chaotic periods, and then reunification. So... I think ancient societies at the very top level, they do collapse, but what they don't do is they don't 
they, they rarely use the technology that they had. So what's unusual about, say, the Bronze Age collapses in the Indus Valley and in, and in the Aegean is that people forget how to use writing. And when they have to use, and they develop new writing at a later point, hundreds of years later. And you think, fall of Rome, what important things do you lose? Well, none of it really. Some stuff you can't afford anymore. Can't afford pepper because it was being brought across the Indian Ocean. You have to make local pottery because the important. But th- this isn't equivalent to not knowing how to write anymore. Sure, yeah, I guess they keep literacy. But my my intuition is that in Rome, right, like at kind of the height of the empire, literacy rates were probably much higher than in the collapse, where writing was kind of basically kept alive by the clergy at that point. But it was kind of these like I don't know pockets that that we were somewhat lucky for. I mean, maybe you can imagine alternate history where it's mostly pagan traditions that aren't as centralized as, as Christianity that, that are much less able to keep writing alive. After the Western Empire fell, the people who ruled that, barbarian kings as they had been, carried on using Roman tax systems, Roman records. The churches went on undisturbed. You read some of the early Christian writers, and they don't even mention the fall of the Roman Empire. It's not very significant for them. It's you know, Key points are Christ being born and then exterminating all the pagans and driving out heretics. But So I think, I think and you know, there's still Italian cities where you can walk through the centre of the city, and you're walking on the lines of Roman roads. So there's was, there was never a moment, and that's not true everywhere in Britain, the cities became depopulated and sometimes rebuilt on the same site, but with completely different routes. But in, if you go to Lucca and Parma, places like that in North Italy, you're walking up and down Roman streets. So quite a lot gets through. Yeah. So okay. After, so Bronze Age collapse happens, and then what happens next with urbanization in the Mediterranean? There is a period of two or three hundred years where there are no cities west of Cyprus to speak of. And then it regrows, and it regrows in a different way. It regrows, you've got some maritime connections, Phoenicians, then some Greeks, some Etruscans, beginning to weave a web of connections between places that are not really yet cities, but their concentrations of power and populations are growing a little bit. And then you do get growth of more of these cities, and they're often they're sort of clusters of villages which share a common temple or a common defensive place, so you know, early Athens or the early Etruscan cities like that. So it grows up much more organically, sort of pooling of resources and fortunes between between farming communities. And then when they've built up a big enough surplus, some of these pushing through into urbanism. And cities appear, but again, this is something relatively new. We used to say, well, it's the Greeks and the Etruscans, but now we know about cities in North Sicily, we know about cities in North Africa, there have been claims for cities north of the Alps. So across this huge area, and part of it, I think, is demographic growth. The population is growing slowly but steadily. Then there's agricultural growth. Iron is much more significant than bronze as a, in terms of agriculture. The advantage of a bronze axe over a stone axe isn't anything like the difference between iron tools, particularly when you've got sort of steels and you can... Have, and they're also making much more use of animal traction, so you can plough heavy soils with oxen pulling. So there's a sort of a steady background growth of people and of power. And then 
Every so often someone organizes and, and the city keeps popping up like that. But not not mega cities, not 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 like the great cities of Bronze Age, Mesopotamia, sort of s- small focus cities. And the, and these and this kind of urbanism turns out to be very successful. That virtually there's clearly a period of, of experimentation with city foundations that don't work, but it's more or less true that all the cities, all the what two thousand odd cities that are we know from 500 BC are still there a thousand years later. And that's because their roots are deep. And if occasionally a city is destroyed, pretty soon someone refounds it or refounds a city with a different name, but on the same place. So this network of cities is, it's very resilient and it's much more natural. If you like the natural economy than those bronze age palaces were. Okay, so then why were the cities chosen to be built in the locations that they were built in? What, what were kind of the key factors? If you think, I'm going to build a city here, what, what leads you to do that? Well, most of the early ones are coastal or are easy to get to from, from a short trip up from the coast. So connectability. Usually cities are based on the edge of or in the middle of plains with relatively good soil, so areas of above average agricultural productivity. A few benefit from unusual things like they're near iron deposits or they're controlling an isthmus, which means they can control trade or routes up and down. But by and large, by the sea, with good agricultural resources, not too arid. Now, those are the success stories. And maybe now you can either think these guys are amazing sort of natural geographers and they instantly spot the best niches or you can say i expect people tried it everywhere but we just don't know about the failures and i I go with the second i think there's enough indications of sort of botched attempts clearly the 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 originating societies are strong enough to cope with with a failure rate they're entrepreneurs in other words and they they know they'll make some losses but they're still prepared to run the risks in return for the gains Cool. So then there's this first generation of cities that's a little bit more grounded, a little bit more local in kind of the the beginning of the Iron Age. And then I guess some of these systems start being relatively successful. So you kind of have, right, the Greek city-states, you have the Etruscans. So what's that process like as some of the the cities begin to, I guess, assert themselves and and really develop these these more regional trading networks? Yeah, I mean, this is quite mysterious but some cities have a comparative advantage over their neighbors and in some cases we can say what it is like say Athens happens to be on a peninsula where you can you can unite much more territory than you can in most locations and it discovers it's got silver mines so for that point of view you can see what they've got going for them in other cases it might be a sort of Almost good fortune, you know. For some reason or other, the people who lived around ancient Sparta got over the mountains and conquered the people on the other side, the Mycenaeans. Now, is that because there's something special about Sparta, or could it have been the other way around? But once you get unevenness, there's a kind of path dependency. So once Athens is unified, Attica is not going to be anywhere else that, that runs Attica. That's that. There's no advantage in going anywhere else. So. Some of it, I suspect, is tiny marginal differences, sometimes maybe good strategy or good luck, determining which cities get bigger. But once you get that unevenness, 
it by and large, it's, you know, there's a lot of positive feedback. Once Athens is a major naval power, it can then provision itself from a great distance. It can get grain from Egypt and, and the Black Sea, and it can intimidate smaller powers. I think stories like that probably happened all around the Mediterranean. We only know some of them. You know, we can't tell in detail why Tarquinia is such a successful Etruscan city out of the dozen or so that existed. But I think those dynamics are happening everywhere. So, uh, and how, how should we think about the different governance systems? I mean, Athens had a kind of different governance structure than Sparta. And uh, I forget the, the Greek guy, the Greek kind of captured somewhat slave who described the Romans and really claimed that the Roman institutions were responsible for, for Rome's success. So how do we think about the, right, like, okay, so we have this uh, emerging cities where there's a little bit of luck, a little bit of path dependence, a little bit of good location. How does governance play into that with the subsequent evolution of, of the region? Uh, well, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an outlier here, Mark, but I don't think it does much, really. I think that things would have looked pretty much the same if Athens had been an oligarchy and Sparta democracy. But most of my colleagues who are Greek historians would be horrified to hear me say that, and they're heavily invested in the importance of democracy, which is important in other respects. But as far as these things go, I don't think it makes much difference. I don't see democratic cities behaving very differently from oligarchical ones. Yeah, you're right. There's a Greek, Polybius, who attributes Rome's success to its perfect blend of oligarchy, democracy, and monarchy. But this is, I think, a classic case of you know, the researcher arrives with his conclusions in his back pocket. I mean, Polybius has been raised in Greek political science, and those three categories, monarchy, democracy, and oligarchy, they're there in Herodotus, and they're built up a lot in Aristotle. So, of course, he goes out and he looks for that in the same way that if you arrive in a in a society and you're absolutely certain that primitive societies are all run by kinship, the first thing you find are the kinship networks. And if you come there and you're a Marxist and you believe that everything really depends on production, that's what you see. So I think ancient sources are not particularly informative. I don't I don't expect ancient writers to be good comparative sociologists. How could they be any more than I expect them to be? epidemiologists. But with that perspective, you must be also pretty pessimistic on modern sociologists. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, sociologists who keep asking questions, yes, but I mean, it's a known syndrome that sort of... An even better example, actually, is how the Americas were understood by the first Europeans. And they arrived there with a whole bunch of ideas they'd already assembled, you know, some of them religious, some of them scientific. And, and you know, many people still believe that North America was inhabited entirely by wild savages, thin on the ground hunters, virtually no civilizational traits. When people arrived, actually, the mound builders, Mississippi shows they had there are North American urban traditions. There were enormously extensive trade networks linking almost all the area from the Canadian Shield down to Mexico. But when the first settlers came, I mean, there were no trade networks because everybody had died from smallpox. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, and they must have yeah, but they they went through the cities of the Mississippi area and they didn't see them because they didn't think they were there to see. And I think, you know, Greeks come into the Roman world and they discover that and when the Greek Romans are strong and they discover either that the Romans are really Greeks, despite all the evidence to the contrary, or that the Romans have somehow got 
perfected the perfect Aristotelian constitution or something like that. But um, I'm, I'm not at all convinced that governance makes a big difference to the rise and fall of individual cities. Okay, so what is your, I mean, because this is, this is interesting, because most economists would say that governance tends to be one of the most important determinants of long-term economic outcomes, right? Like a well-governed, if you look at the difference between like East and West Germany or North and South Korea, right? These tend to be very substantial differences that like the standard economic rationale is this is attributed to governance. And so maybe we're, I guess, using like one possibility is we're using different words or same words to mean different things. Other possibility is there's a degree of co-determination where once you have the culture set, culture that influences governance, so if you have a, right, like, I don't know, if Athens is an oligarchy or instead of a uh, democracy, then because they're still Athenian, because they're still Greek, because they still have that underlying culture, the outcomes are, are somewhat similar. So, I mean, how, how do you respond to that? I think that's an astute comment about using the same words in different meanings. By what I mean, I suppose, is that the, the main variations among ancient cities are things like how many people could vote and how powerful the wealthy were relative to people who are still have property but are less wealthy. And that's the sort of spectrum along which democracy, oligarchy, and so on is measured. And I don't think that variation makes a big difference. Although we're only looking at you know, Greek history last a couple of centuries in, in this sense of Greek history. So there's not a lot of chance to see it working out. I do think, I, I think there's other institutions that are really important. So, I mean, I think things like coinage, conventions about trade, which are more or less international. Coinage is international, but everybody uses coins. And pretty soon, most of them, if they can use Athenian coins, the Athenians standardise weights and measures in their zone. So those sort of institutions, I think, are enormously important for economics. There are m- most ancient cities fluctuate in their political things constitution so Syracuse has periods where it's run by an oligarchy periods where it's very democratic periods where it's run by tyrants and these often go backwards and forwards within the sort of triangular motion and Athens you know at some point is ruled by hereditary families then it's a bit democratic then it's very democratic you know then after Alexander the Great is a bit less democratic by the time the Romans get there the rich are running it that makes a huge difference in lots of other ways, but I don't think it affects economic growth in, in, enormously. I mean, there's so many more differences to East and West Germany than, than that. I mean, the, I think it's very difficult to imagine. I mean, the, there you look at the entire social change, aren't you? A control economy which attempts to maximise employment rather than profitability in the DDR. And, of course, that's going to be different than a, an economy in the Federal Republic of Germany, which is much more geared into the same sort of capitalist enterprises and business-orientated rebuilding and recovery that we're all used to. Sure. So I guess you can differentiate between what might be described as, as, as governance, which is like, how are the decisions made and who chooses the decision makers, and kind of policies, which are what are the like specific, right, like, I don't know, taxes, what is the like level of support for infrastructure, for like private versus public employment, et cetera, things like that. And while policies are to a certain extent downstream from like governance, there there still is obviously, I guess, a, a degree of, of interplay there where presumably if you get a, like, I don't know, if you have a monarchy in like early Mediterranean history and you have a bad king and the king is like, I don't know, some merchant was mean to me once when I was a kid, 
So I'm going to raise taxes on all merchants. Presumably that would affect the economic health of the city. <laughs> that probably happened on at least one occasion. Yeah, but the, these are superbly weak states. The tax levels are tiny. Your interest rates on investments are sort of under 4%. 80% of the Roman imperial budget goes on the army. By, by modern standards, they're unbelievably feeble. Very little of what decisions that are made have those sorts of, I mean, the, the power of culture, I think, is much more important than, than policy. And ancient states rarely made decisions about these sort of things. They made decisions about going to war or not going to war. And that, that's, and then they tried people and they made treaties, they did diplomacy and some, but their capacity to run, you know, the biggest economic decision Athens makes is when they find the silver mines, one person proposes dividing the money up and giving it to all the citizens, and another person says, no, let's invest in a navy. So that's a major decision, but that, that's the level of decision-making. It's so much less sophisticated than they have no idea how to use tax to change the economy. They had no idea there was a money supply in any sense other than the fact that they minted money when they had bullion. There's relatively little credit. States couldn't borrow. So, I mean, they're, they're puny actors in the ancient economy compared to our states, which are most of them enormously powerful, you know. My government here in the UK is making some more money this week. It's decided to do quantitative easing. And it's borrowing silly amounts of money for the future. They will pay back one day. Who knows when? 10, 20, 30 years. HSH couldn't do any of that stuff. Maybe, maybe it's just as well. Maybe they were a bit more secure because they had less power. Sure, but I guess one of the kind of I don't know trade-offs, one of the economic stories, is that a lot of early states end up becoming impoverished in part because their power base is so weak that they're afraid to empower merchants. If you look at, for example, the aristocracy throughout like most of the, the Middle Ages in Europe, they would often be relatively antagonistic to trade, to merchant interests, with the fear that if there is then this other group that becomes wealthy via trade, then they're able to challenge the aristocracy for, for power. But maybe like because most of the, the cities in the Mediterranean already had like trade in their DNA, that never really became part of the calculus in what government should do and how it should act. Yeah, I think that I think it's right that there's never any there isn't people have attempted but very unconvincingly to argue there are sort of mercantile middle classes, but as far as we can see, the people who invest in in shipping and in building and you know building for rental and so on, these are the wealthy and they do it as a sideline and actually, even I mean the modern version of this is not as simple as those schemas re- represent, is it? I mean, quite a lot of investment in the industrialization, the early industrialization in Britain was made by aristocrats who were trying to find a way to use the the revenue, to re- some way to invest their revenues in the absence of sort of banks and shares and so on. So, but yeah, in the ancient world, there's all sorts of levels of trade. Some of them are small fry, but there's some, some big stuff. You know, people... You know the the East India the Indian Ocean trade, the uh, moving luxury spices, things like that around the Mediterranean. And there's a lot of money invested in building, and by and large, this seems to be people are quite happy. I mean, they build harbors to help merchants. They offer you a tax break if you bring your grain to Rome. When the Athenians quarrel, 
with one of their neighbours, they ban Megarians from harbours throughout the Athenian Empire. So they recognise that free access to harbours is something that everybody wants. And if you want to hurt somebody, you, you, you stop having free access. I mean, and the only people stupid enough to think that at the moment are Boris Johnson and his group. Cool. So we've got a few minutes left. Let me round up with two additional questions. So one is, we haven't really gone to Rome yet. So what was, I don't know, different in the water of Rome, quote unquote, that actually led to this Mediterranean empire, while previous attempts had been much like smaller, more regional, more were fragmented? Some of it's geopolitics. It's in the middle. That helps. It's Rome is the only place where Romans live. And so it hasn't got the sort of fissile potential of the Etruscans who are divided into sort of, you know, a dozen polities or Greeks with all their tiny cities. There's also perhaps a bit of luck. Let's unpack that point a little bit, because I think that's, that's interesting and something I hadn't thought about before, is that the larger kind of cultures, the Etruscans, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, that had multiple different political units, while they might have been more impressive on one margin, because there were all these different political units, right, it becomes very difficult to form a, I don't know, confederacy, allegiance, empire, right? Maybe if, if, if the Persians are invading, then you all get together to fight back the Persians. But after the Persians leave, you go back to your internal squabbles, where because the Romans started out as only in Rome, that meant that when they were expansionary, they could be expansionary for a much longer period of time before they got to the infighting and bickering. I think that does happen, yeah. I mean, it's very noticeable in Greece that through the 5th and 4th centuries, there are a whole series of competing cities, but as soon as one of them gets sort of really dominant, all the others gang up on it and pull it down again. And so you get a kind of, it's almost like a sort of self-regulatory mechanism where if in favour of political pluralism, and that doesn't happen in Rome. But it's also the case that the if you think in terms of centuries rather than decades, the size of political units is very tiny and the number of them is very large and beginning of the first millennium BCE and then by the fifth century you've got a bunch of cities which are pulled away from the rest and they exercise regional hegemonies and then you get things that are more like small empires and would the world have been so different if the Carthaginians had won the Punic Wars you'd have had another major city more or less where modern Tunis is right so again in the center of the Mediterranean very well connected good agricultural hinterland other Phoenician-speaking cities around, a naval power. An ancient world unified by Carthage wouldn't look very different than one unified by Rome. It would have really cool elephants. Yeah, fantastic. (laughs) Ancients wondered what would have happened if Alexander had gone west instead of east, or west after east, and they spent a lot of time working out. So, yeah, yeah, suppose suppose Alexander had invaded Italy. Could he have conquered to to the Atlantic? And so... This, I mean, it's very tempting for us to look back down history and imagine everything can be explained and everything had to happen the way it did. But quite often in history, there's more than one possibility that's like the sort of the, the curve of decisions which bifurcates again and again. When you look back down the bifurcation curve, it all looks like a straight line. But as you go forward, there must be many points at which things could have worked out differently. Yeah. And so let me ask, one of the chapters in your book, you talk about founding of new cities. So this is interesting because right at the Charter Cities Institute, we do think about like building new cities primarily for reasons of economic development and emerging markets as a way to improve 
governance. But I mean, I'm curious, what exactly did this look like in the ancient world? And, and what are kind of, I don't know, the core lessons for what led to a successful versus unsuccessful city development? Quite often, new cities are actually found on top of old ones. So lots of things we call Roman colonies, they just take over a site. So Pompeii's a Roman colony, but it had been inhabited by Oscan speakers before that. So some new cities weren't really as new as they looked. I think there's a bit of a problem in the sort of 3rd, 2nd centuries BC that most of the really good sites in the Mediterranean have been taken already. So they do take over old cities or destroy old cities and replace them. But there are areas they build which hadn't really had big city traditions before, like Algeria or Romania. And there they do take greenfield sites and they create these enormous planned cities. And it takes a lot of investment and they supply them with infrastructure. They build roads out to them, aqueducts, all of this sort of stuff. They supply them with populations, quite often discharged soldiers, but not always. And there's a tradition of of founding cities. So they've got things to go on. Of course, they also build temples and basic amenities and so on. So when the Roman soldiers, veterans are settled in Pompeii, one of the first things that goes up is an amphitheater. So they've got something they're familiar with. The failures, well, it's a bit, you mentioned James C. Scott earlier, and in Seeing Like a State, he does talk about how quite often top-down reorganization projects fail dramatically because they're not suited to the base on which they're going to rest. And Rome has lots of examples of that, colonies which are abandoned. Quite often colonies have to be filled up with populations two or three times, and people will walk away from them. So Rome has made mistakes like everybody else in their city planning. So the really successful ones, well, they're in the same place as the really successful first cities, on the coast, well-connected by road, with a hinterland, ideally not just agricultural resources, but something else, marble, metals, they're the big ones, or access to areas where you can pasture sheep and specialise in textiles. So that that works. But the Mediterranean's are, it's been inhabited for a long time by farmers before the Romans pull it together. And a lot of the good spots are taken. So you know, the, the really spectacular urbanistic projects are the ones that happen outside the Med. And there there's a lot of failures. As well as as well as some great successes. Great, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Interesting conversation, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.